You know, when we plan out the year and we're thinking about services and, and holidays and things, you know, we kind of typically know, typically, that Father's Day is not a high attendance Sunday. Mother's Day, now that's a high attendance Sunday. Father's Day tends not to be so much. And I think I know at least one of the reasons why that may be. And I was thinking about this just in the history of my own preaching and my own experience in church through really my whole life. And, you know, at Mother's Day, it seems like so many of the messages are so encouraging and, and so sweet, so uplifting. You know, we compare all the moms in the room to Mary, the mother of Jesus. And we talk about how wonderful you are and, and how blessed you are. And then when Father's Day comes, we compare you to like some horrible king in Israel's history or Eli, the high priest with his terrible sons. And we tell you, you guys stink. You need to step it up. And we wonder why the dads don't want to be here as much on Father's Day. Well, I'm not going to do that to you today. I do want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. I want to speak from the word, but I don't want to do that. I, I was thinking about what Father's Day was like for us growing up. My parents were divorced and I would typically see my dad on Father's Day um, after church on Sunday we would drive down and, and visit my dad and my grandfather there um, at my grandfather's house. And like some of you in the room, we had not given too much thought of what we we're going to do for him or give him on Father's Day. And so we would stop at one of the few stores that was open on Sundays on Highway 74 leaving Charlotte. And that was Eckerd Drugs. And at Eckerd Drug, we'd give my dad, buy my dad something he didn't really need nor want, like a new pair of slippers or, you know, an oscillating fan or something like that. But at least we're having something for Father's Day. Um, today I want to honor you dads though in the room, and then I'm going to speak to the children of those dads in just a moment. But to honor the dads, can we have all the fathers stand up just for a moment? We just want to honor you today. We want to thank God for you. Spiritual leaders in your home, leaders in our church and our community, praise God for you. Now I want to speak to the sons and daughters who are in this room, particularly those of you who didn't remember that today was Father's Day, or you didn't do anything yet for Father's Day, there's still hope for you. If, if that's you, and if you're bold enough to acknowledge that, no, I, I, I forgot or I didn't, I meant to, I had good intentions, but I didn't do anything for my dad for Father's Day, will you stand? <laughs> no, is there anybody? I'm going to help you out here. I promise. This is going to be for your good. Is there anybody in that category? Any of you young ladies, did you do good by your fathers this morning? Did you? Anybody? Everybody's good? Okay, well, let me tell you what I got. Lori Jane, will you hand me that box under your seat? So yesterday, I was at the Tomato Festival in Slocum. And Cecilia filled out a card at the uh, food giant. And I got a call back later that afternoon that I'd won this coffee pot. <laughs> and seeing as I don't really need another coffee pot, I thought I would offer this up to one of you young people who didn't do anything for your dad <laughs> for Father's Day. But none of you were bold enough to claim it. It's your last chance. All right, it's going to be right here. Happy Father's Day. I want to open... I guarantee you the shipping of that to Brazil is more than that coffee pot's worth. <laughs> but you do what you, you do you, okay? It's the thought that counts. Now, think about some conversations had 
Um, my dad has passed away. My grandfather's passed away. And now, and I can think about some conversations we would have sitting on the front porch of my grandparents' house sometimes. And inevitably, you get into talking about people and neighbors or, you know, cousins, distant relatives, maybe their kids, their families. And of course, conversation always turned to somebody who did something really, really dumb, really foolish, maybe something they got in trouble for, maybe something they got hurt doing. And I can remember phrases like this. Well, somebody needs to talk some sense into that boy. You ever, your parents ever say that? Somebody needs to talk some sense into that boy. Now, sometimes the word wouldn't be talk some sense. Sometimes it would be knock some sense, but, you know, that's a different generation. Talk some sense into. Well, that's the focus of today's message. I'm afraid that more and more today, we don't have enough people in our lives talking sense into us. Now, maybe that's because we don't want it. Or think we don't need it. Or maybe on the other hand, it's because we're so busy with our own lives, our own selves, our own pursuits, that we don't get connected enough. We don't get involved enough. I've told some version of this story many times, but I want to repeat it today. As one of those young men who grew up in a single-parent home, my dad not around from the time I was two years on and up, I can assure you not only does God fulfill a unique role in that situation as father to the fatherless as he promises to be, but God uses men to step in and fill those roles. Now, I won't point to just one man in particular, but I can point to a number of men who mentored, encouraged, challenged, sometimes corrected. I would encourage you men to look out for those children, young people, students in our congregation that fall into that category. Dads just aren't there for whatever reasons. And look at what God might do through you and for them. We all need people in our lives that are willing to be connected, involved enough to care, to love, to speak sense into. Because the normal Christian life is a sensible life. It's a life that makes sense. It's a life that works. It's a life that goes with the grain of how God has made us. With the grain of what God wants for us. With the grain of what's best for us. And that's what I'm going to talk to you about today. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you give us the sort of hearing that perceives rightly. I don't know how it is or why it is, Father, that, that it happens this way, but sometimes we just hear what we want to hear. Or sometimes even in the hearing of a thing, we, we twist what we're hearing to say something that was not said. Father, I pray that would not be true today. Father, sometimes we filter what we hear and put it into categories. This one's for someone else. This is for some other time. This one I don't need. Father, I pray that today we could hear what you're saying to us personally, very personally. I mean, speak to us, challenge us, teach us, encourage us. Bless us. Father, in all that we hear today, may we recognize, may we believe with our hearts that we don't fully understand all the implications of it yet. Maybe we believe that you are a good Father. You long to be good towards us, to do good for us. So, Lord, that as we listen to you and we obey you and as we trust you, as we follow you, as we're faithful to you, that's good. That's always good. That's for our good because you always lead us into the good. And Father, I pray we'd honor you in how we receive your word today and how we hear from you and how we, how we do it. Make us doers of this word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Titus chapter 2, starting at verse 1. 
Before I read these verses, I'm going to offer just a bit of context. So if you have your Bible, you can just look back a few verses ahead of this because this will help make what I'm about to read make a lot more sense. If you see this as one continuous letter, which it is, and really it's a short letter altogether. Of course, we're breaking it into smaller parts, but one continuous letter, one continuous theme. And right before what we're just about to read, Paul had written this to Timothy, I mean, sorry, to Titus about the context in which he was going to be doing ministry. On the Isle of Crete live people who, not coincidentally, are called Cretans. Those are residents of Crete. Now, residents of Crete had developed a rough reputation, and we still use that sometimes, not as often as we used to historically, but the word Cretan typically meant someone who was very rough around the edges, not very moral, not very honest, not very decent. This was the, the far outpost of culture in Titus's day. And speaking of some specific people, teachers, leaders, really false prophets, Titus 1, verse 12 says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. They're always liars. They don't say what's the truth. They're not rooted in truth. They're not rooted in soundness. And their lives show it. They're, they're lying people, not rooted in the truth, and they're evil beasts. They live according to those lies. He says this testimony is true. Paul said to Timothy, this is true about the people you're going to be ministering to. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. See, that's the opposite of that. It's the opposite of falsehood. It's the truth, so they may know what's real, what's right, what's true. God is true. His word is truth. Therefore, rebuke them sharply they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. Now, we talked about that last week, and you can reference that in last week's message. But listen to verse 16, because this is the setup, the contrast. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Now, I want you to center in on that verse just for a moment in the first part of it, verse 16. Because this is the challenge to everyone in this room as well. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They say that they are believers, but their lives show something very different than that. And that's the ultimate challenge here. Does what I say I believe show up in how I live my life? The things I care about, the things I desire... The things I do, the things I don't do, does it show up every day? Can, can I validate my beliefs with my behavior, or is the opposite true? So he says, that was them. They, they're, they're liars because they don't do what they say they believe. Their lives don't match the lives of people who claim to know God. And then verse 1 of chapter 2, but as for you. But as for you, Titus. You can't be that way, he's saying. As for you, you teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then to others in the congregation, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, 
and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urged the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself, back to Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's talk about sound doctrine just for a moment. He says, you teach sound doctrine. What, what does he mean by sound doctrine? In his book, Recovering Our Sanity, How the Fear of God Conquers the Fear That Divides Us, Michael Horton offers this insight into broken human behavior. His claim in the book is this, we don't need to, to convince people that God is real in order to begin sharing the gospel with them that they might believe in him and follow him. All evidence points to the reality of God. What we have to do with people is help them interpret all the evidence that they already have and apply it correctly. And this is what he said. He says, how far will we go in denying what common sense, reason, and observation naturally yield? We live against the grain of nature, even against what we know by observation is true. He says the fear of God is living with the grain of reality. To really fear God, to know Him, as in Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is insight. This reverential understanding of God to honor Him as the ultimate, to submit to Him as the authority, to revere Him as the, as the King, to yield to Him in every way, to know Him rightly, that's the beginning of True wisdom, true understanding to know God. He says, go against a grain of wood, you get splinters. Defy gravity, you will not break a physical law, you will break yourself against it. We did not make ourselves, so it's insane to live as though we could be whatever and whomever we choose. We don't belong to ourselves, but to God. As believers, we know that we belong to God by right of creation and providence and doubly by right of election and redemption. So he says, living with the grain of reality is to accept the truth instead of trying to run from it, hide it, distort it, or bury it so we don't have to deal with it. And I love this quote, sanity is just living with the grain of reality. And God is reality. And that's what I mean by sensible. This life that God has called us to live is sensible. It runs with the grain of reality. Who God is, what God has done, what God expects. So what is sound doctrine? Well, we already saw this reference earlier in the letter, in chapter 1, verse 9, when we saw Paul's challenges to Titus about elders. He told Titus, put in order the churches that are there. And one of the ways, the primary way of putting in order the structure of the churches, the ecclesiology of the church, is to put elders in place. And he says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That's your first clue as to what sound doctrine is. What has God taught us in his word? What has he revealed in the Old Testament? What has been magnified and now much more clearly revealed in the coming of Christ? What has been the message of the apostles? What is the consistent word of Scripture as taught? He says, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Paul says something very similar to Timothy, his mentee, 
1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, follow the pattern of sound words you have heard from me. There's a consistency to the message of Scripture from the beginning to end. Follow these sound words in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. This truth ultimately revealed in Christ is a deposit to be kept. And so this is what our faith is based on. This is what we fight for according to Jude verse 3. It's what we contend for. So sound doctrine is the teaching from God, about God, that ultimately glorifies God. That's what sound doctrine is. It's a teaching from God, about God, for the glory of God. And what's the expected fruit of this? Clearly the theme that just runs through like an unmistakable thread is behavior that aligns with belief. Titus, teach the truth. Titus, live out the truth in front of people. Titus, expect people to live according to the truth. Correct those who don't. Affirm those who return to it. Believe it and live it. That's normal Christianity. Knowing about God is crucially important for the living of our lives, J.I. Packer writes. For those of us who think that doctrine, theology, studying truth, facts, getting things right has no bearing on the day-to-day routine of your life, you could not be more wrong. Over and over in Scripture, we see this absolutely necessary union between what's right and true and how we are to live. In fact, we see this great divorce when people don't know the truth or reject the truth. Their lives always show it. The anchor to right living is right believing. So J.I. Packer wrote this. He said, The world becomes a strange, mad, painful place, and life in it a disappointing and unpleasant business for those who don't know about God. Disregard the study of God, and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded, as it were, with no sense of direction, no understanding of what surrounds you. This way you can waste your life and lose your soul. That's how important it is to know the truth and do it. So let's talk about the practical ways this is to be lived out in a community of faith like ours. First of all, he addresses the older men in the room. All the older men in the room, will you raise your hands for a moment? I want you to self-identify because I'm not going to offend you, okay? So older men, raise your hands. Proudly, men. The gray hair is a crown. Wear it proudly. Some of you nodding your heads. Some of you are parting your hair right now. You're trying to cover You can only comb over so far, gentlemen. Eventually, you have to give in to reality. Don't go against the grain of reality. (laughs) To older men, older men are to be this. Check yourself. Sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Let's break that down for a moment and make sure we're clear on the terms. They are to be sober-minded. The word for that is temperate. Literally, it means you're not to be drunken. Now, the meaning of the text in view here is not less than that, but it certainly is more than that. It's an opposite of what that drunkenness would cause. Not to be drunken, but to be clear-headed in all respects. To be able to see rightly, to be temperate, to not be cloudy, To not be affected in your judgment by anything external, but to know what the truth is, to be clear on it, to be temperate. Number two, to be worthy of respect. 
Now, in that culture, much more so, unfortunately, compared to today, but in that culture, it's assumed that older men are going to be respected. That's just natural. That's cultural. But this passage speaks more than just take advantage of the position you have by virtue of your your years. This speaks of earning the respect, being worthy of it. Listen, people are going to, particularly in the first century, and again, I'm ashamed to say not nearly so much in the 21st, but people in the first century are going to look to the older and expect them to know things, to understand things, to have been there and done that, and to be able to help them walk through things. He says, don't do this as an assumption. Be worthy of that. When they look to you, give them something to look to. When they ask of you, give them ready answers. When they want an example to follow, be a life worth imitating to them. Be worthy of respect. Number three, be self-controlled. Be self-controlled. That means no longer are you easily swayed, easily moved, easily affected, not given to irrational behavior, uncontrollable outbursts, not letting other people determine what you're going to do. You have self-mastery. I know who I am in Christ. I know how I'm supposed to live as a result of that. I have, I have control of myself because I've yielded to the, to the control of God's Spirit over me. To be self-controlled and sound. Big umbrella. Sound. Sound in your faith. Do you understand the gospel? Do you understand the truths of God? It doesn't mean you're perfect or you have every detail figured out because you'll spend the life of your years understanding all the depths of God and still never plummet them. Sound in your faith, sound in love. Does it show up in how you love people? If you have all these other things but don't have love, Paul said you're just an annoying sound, a banging gong, a clanging cymbal. Are you sound in your love? And in your endurance, we sang this song, we're almost home. We're looking to those older men to be anchored, deeply rooted, well-tethered, immovable. These aren't the people walking away from the faith. These are the people that are telling the others, stand firm. Hang in there. You'll get through this. It's going to be worth it. Let's finish well. Those are the challenges. And these are the men you younger men in this room should be listening to. These are the men you younger men in the room should be giving attention to and learning from. But I'm afraid that there is a prevailing myth that permeates our culture today. And maybe it's more unspoken or implied than it is spoken, but it certainly exists. And it's this subtle and sometimes not so subtle idea that older people don't have anything to teach us anymore. You know, times are changing so rapidly. Things are advancing so quickly. Technology, information, etc. That the older generation has got nothing for us anymore. I was reading this article just yesterday in Fox Business. This was the title of the article. Gen Z calls out baby boomers for annoying workplace habits. And I'm reading this, and I was kind of laughing to myself. I'm not a baby boomer, but I'm kind of sort of close to that. And I was reading this thinking, yeah, this is kind of true. It's kind of funny to me. They notice specific baby boomer behavior that bugs them, according to a survey, such as being too liberal with the reply all button on emails. I hate that, don't you? Get an email, big group email, now I've got to read everybody's response. Yes, I'll be there. Yes, I'll be there. Yes, sounds great. Yes, sounds great. Yes, sounds great. Don't do that. That's terrible. That's sin. <laughs> Making unnecessary phone calls. Asking technology questions that could have been answered by first using Google. 
Other Gen Z workers complained about boomers using outdated language, wasting paper, pushing everyone to work in the office, and constantly booking meetings that they felt were not necessary. I thought, yeah, I do all those things. And I think even of simple things. You know, I'm trying to explain to my mom or my mother-in-law how to send an email with her iPad, and you know, it's like I'm rewriting nuclear code or something here. It's not that hard. And, but unfortunately, we have this idea they have nothing to teach us. And the Bible says the natural means of healthy Christian growth and development is that older men who meet these characteristics, these men that you can look to, are imparting their life into you. So then the question I think begged by the text is, so what is, what is a younger man in the text? I want all the younger men to raise your hands. I'll let you self-identify. Younger men, raise your hands. Hold them up just for a minute. Younger men, Sam, put your hand down. <laughs> younger men, raise your hands. Hold them up there. Now let me tell you about the culture here because if you're thinking younger men, is like, like these are like teenagers, okay? Yes and no. Yes, they're younger for sure, but that's not who's in view here. When Paul was speaking to Timothy, he wasn't talking to the you know, teenage super pastor here. Younger men in this culture, someone could be called a youth, the term youth, neotes, until they were up to 40 years old. Now, everybody 40 and under, raise your hand. 40 and under, go ahead, raise your hand. You're the younger men in this room. They should be looking to the older men and seeing what you can learn from them, what they can teach you about faith and life, about marriage and family. About business and work, about honesty and, and integrity. According to Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, he says 30 is the first stage of a young man's life. And it extends all the way into his 40s, as all will admit. Josephus called a 40-year-old man a youth in his historic works, the Antiquities. So here's my question for the older men in this room. Who are you mentoring into a sensible life? Who are you mentoring into a sensible life? Now, as a church, we try to do what we can to encourage mentoring, disciple-making, providing means and ways, structures, training, things like D-groups, etc. What if there was just a, a normal natural, common, dare I say, organic character to our disciple-making here. That this just looks like what we do. Younger men looking to older men. Older men pouring into younger men. All for the sake of godliness, spiritual health, growth, sensible living. Shifting to older women, verse 3. Older women likewise. So this is likewise, there's an expectation of those things that we've just heard about older men, they also apply to older women. But there's some unique applications here because your calling and your situation is going to be different. He says older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Let's break these terms down for a moment. Reverent in the way that you live. That simply means someone whose life gives evidence to the grace of God in it. Someone whose life gives evidence to the Spirit of God, guiding them and leading them. It simply means a lifestyle indicative of a saved person. Everything that they do ought to be suitable for a follower of Jesus. 
So when it says live that reverent life, that's talking about living a life before the Father, before the face of God. Reverent life. Not be slanderers. Well, that was pretty straightforward, isn't it? Women, older women, you should not be spreading hurtful information about other people. Whether it's true or false, you should not be talking in a way that affects people's character, that affects people, other people's opinion of those people, that harms people. Not to be slanderers, not to be busybodies, not to be sharing prayer requests, quote-unquote, under the form of slander, just so you can talk about people and their stuff and their problems and their business. Number three, not addicted to much wine. Sober. We need sober minds, sober, clear hearts and heads. And here's the positive, to be teachers of good. By your personal example, by your own study and knowledge, through your own life experiences of walking faithfully with the Father, the expectation, very clearly, from the first century on has been that older women would teach younger women. In fact, even stepping up the terminology, he says, training them. And again, I was thinking about this this morning. We're constantly trying to figure out as a staff how we can better train up our people, all of us, male and female, you know, what courses we can teach, what material we can encourage and disseminate, what programs we can offer, what blocks of time we can protect and structure around. And again, I ask a similar question. What if it was normal and natural? Again, dare I say organic. It just happens here out of a healthy body growing for our older women to be constantly training up our younger women like that. Do you think we would see healthier marriages if we did? Do you think we would see better family lives? Do you think there would be more joy and peace in our homes? You think there'd be more encouragement, more satisfaction, a healthier sense of self and purpose and value? I think there would be. Listen to what he says. He says, train the younger women, most likely, specifically, but not exclusively, the newly married women, to do these things. And I want you to think about this. This is a self-check. It doesn't require much explanation on my part. But you older women, you 40s and up, looking at those 40 and younger, are you helping those younger than you know how to love their families? And what does it really look like to love them? How do you love them sacrificially? Are you training them to do that? Are you training them to be moms, wives, to be self-controlled and pure? That you don't have the right to go after everything that you desire. Personal happiness is not the highest pursuit of a believer, but God-honoring holiness is. To be pure in your life, so to protect your own self, protect your marriage, protect your family, to be busy at home. Now, I, I get the reality that forces us sometimes to have two incomes and things like that. But I also fear that we have bought into a culture that minimizes the worth and value. In fact, the godly calling, the occupation ordained by God of a mom who stays at home with her kids and can pour her life into her children. 
to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands, to learn, because this culture doesn't teach you that. You, you won't learn that in school. You won't learn that in higher education. You won't learn that through movies or, or media. You won't learn this through your peers who are not believers. So where will you learn what God requires is the ordering of a home and a family to be subject to your husbands. Again, we're trying to figure these things out and how we might program them or structure them. And God has given us the means. What if this was happening all the time in our church family? All the time. Younger pouring into older. Older pouring into younger. What's the purpose and point of all this? That the worth of God's Word might be demonstrated. And that God's glory might be elevated in our lives. That you can show. Again, listen to the, the wording of this. The final phrase in verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Teach these things and do them so that you can show the grain of reality, God's truth. That you can show that God's way is the right way. It's the good way. It's the healthy way. It's the beneficial way. It's what God has granted to us. Show this. Show the worth of his word. Elevate him in our lives. So a question for the older women, you know what's coming. Older women, who right now are you training into a sensible life? This sort of life. And a question for our younger women, whose training are you under? Now again, I suspect that if this is not happening nearly to the degree that it ought to, that the fault runs two ways. Younger women not willing to submit themselves, not seeking it, or perhaps, and I hope not, arrogantly thinking you don't need it or they have nothing to show you. I hope you'll pursue it. And older women, I hope, you will, hope you'll hear what I'm saying, the value that you have, the ministry that you've been given, the opportunities that you have to make a real difference in your older years, whatever they may be. In this context, I'm just making sort of an artificial divide. So younger, 40 and down, and older, 40 and up. It's a simple divide. But you're worth it. You have value. But I hope you're not too preoccupied or too disconnected that you won't offer it. One of the reasons why, I just want to throw this in there, it just popped into my head, so now it's going to pop out of my mouth. People ask sometimes, well, you know these open classes that you're doing, it's kind of disrupted the rhythm and flow of our life groups. You know, we've been in these life groups for years and years and years, and we know these people well, and our lives are intertwined, and that's great, and I'm glad you've been through the highs and lows of life together. But one of the reasons we wanted to offer the occasional participation in these open classes is that there might be a greater integration of younger and older who are not going to be in the same life group typically, who aren't going to run in the same circles, who aren't going to go to the same luncheons and, and be part of the same events, but they might meet one another, get to know one another. There, there's a reason why women get together on a fairly regular basis for something like Coffee and Connect. So you can look across the span of these ages and meet one another and get to know one another, not just for the sake of just friendliness or superficial fellowship, but life-giving relationship, disciple-making relationship. Whose training are you under? Who are you training? Now let's look at the younger men, verse 6. This one's pretty straightforward. Younger men, this one's right between the eyes. Boom, here you go. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. We're going to keep it simple for you because we know your attention deficit. And we don't want to give you more than you can remember or take home. But for you 40 and younger particularly, be self-controlled. Because by your very nature, you tend to be impetuous. 
You tend not to think things through. You tend to be unrestrained. And your basic need is to be under control. That was the mark of a wiser older man, that he's self-controlled. Your aim as a younger man is to be self-controlled. That all my desires, my emotions, my feelings, my wants, my pursuits cannot have tyranny over me. I meet too many young men whose lusts rule them. It's the tyranny they live under. The constant pursuit of something else. Someone else. Some other job. Some other toy. Some other activity. Constantly guided by what they feel. Spouting out whatever they think in the moment. And our culture allows that. Endorses that. Maybe even applauds that. Finds it to be humorous. But the challenge here is to live in a state of self-control governed by the truth of God's Word, ruled by the Spirit of God in you so that your feelings and emotions, your desires and your wants and your pursuits and all those things don't master you. Be self-controlled. So younger men likewise ask this question to you. Who have you got talking sense into your life? Who is mentoring you into a self-controlled life? Here's my fear for the younger men in the room. Again, I use that term loosely. Too many of you don't have anyone in your life who will tell you no. Because your relationships, you're sort of like, you're sort of like Solomon's son, Rehoboam. Have you ever seen such a contrast in generations? Solomon, through much difficulty, was ultimately recognized as the wisest man. Rehoboam, on the other hand, not so much. Because when he had an opportunity to be counseled by men of his father's generation, he instead chose to only seek counsel from his peers. And no one in his peer group had the wisdom or foresight, the knowledge, the understanding to say, no, don't do that. No, that's wrong. No, that's going to hurt you. No, that's going to have a bad effect. Listen, I'm telling you, young man, if you don't have anyone in your life who can mentor you into self-control, you can say that's not wise. That's not best for your family. And if you're not willing to receive that, if pride or arrogance or disconnect keeps you from it, then, then you're ensuring you're going to face the pains and the heartaches and the difficulties that those relationships could have prevented you from. Who's mentoring you into a sensible, self-controlled life? And then Paul redirects some, some teaching that's specifically to Titus. And you'll notice in your notes, I wrote it this way. It is to Titus. It's speaking specifically to him. But the concepts are for us, specifically for any of you who teach in any way, formally or informally. And so when I say teachers in the room, I'm not talking about simply those who might teach an open class or a life group or lead a D group. I'm talking about any of you who teach, anybody, anywhere, the mentoring, teaching life. Listen to what he says to Titus. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And that's pretty straightforward, right? He starts with, you teach the truth sound doctrine. It must accord with that which you've received from me, that which you've received from the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, received his directly from Jesus. There's a continuous thread here. Keep this going, the sacred deposit, truth, but show yourself to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Now, let me try to explain this in short order. He's not saying, Titus, as you start preaching the gospel, as you start leading the church, as you start correcting people, these Cretans, these, 
these liars, these evil beasts, these gluttons, they're going to love it. They're going to say, oh, please give me some more of that. They're not. He's not saying people aren't going to disagree with you, aren't going to object to what you're saying. He's saying make sure that their objections can't be because you're a fraud. Make sure that what you're teaching is consistent from beginning to end, that it aligns with what we would call orthodoxy, that it's true. You know, we saw an example in our culture today of what standing up for truth might cost you. Remember the baseball player for the Toronto Blue Jays? Shared something in his social media that gave some affirmation to boycotts of Bud Light and Target. Immediately there was backlash. And the powers that be in our state-endorsed religion called pride recoiled against him. And next thing you know, he's standing before a microphone giving some scripted mea culpa apology, saying he needs to re-educate himself. I'm wondering how long it'll be till we have pride re-education camps for all of us who disagree. I'm going to re-educate myself. I promise I'm going to do better. And in his apology, they're going to humble him, humiliate him, actually. And so the opening night, pride night, he has to catch the opening pitch. And then what do they do? They cut him anyway. They release him anyway. You know what he should have done? He should have stood his ground. He should have said, this is what's right and true. He should have pulled a Martin Luther. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me, God. Because I'm not going to go against the grain of reality. I'm not going to deny what I know is true. And I'm not going to go against what God has said, for God is truth. He's the author of all truth. And then just deal with it. Because they're going to argue with you anyway. They're going to object to you anyway. But if you back down, if you bow down, if you falter, they're still going to crush you. So stand. And stand for the honor of God. Let God lift you up. Don't let them refute you because you don't live what you say you believe. Have integrity in your teaching. You teach best when your life shows the impact of your words. So remember this teacher, leader, disciple maker, father, grandfather, older woman, mentor of younger women. Everything we do refutes or confirms what we say. So, with that in mind, for every teacher, there are these two critical elements. Integrity and seriousness. Seriousness doesn't mean you can't have some fun with it. It doesn't mean you don't use life examples and lessons and things like that. Serious means that you understand the sacredness of what you're doing here. When you're teaching, you're, you're conveying sacred truth. There's, a, there's an importance of a task here. Mentoring, disciple-making is a sacred task. And integrity. Does the inside match the outside? Are my motives, my attitudes aligned with the truth that I say? So he says to Titus, the words that you preach and teach have to be sound, correct doctrinally. They have to be irrefutable. And I would say this, again, the world's going to argue what you say. That's not right, that's bigoted, that's narrow-minded, that's whatever the terms are going to use. But do this as a Christian. Be consistent and orthodox. Be able to say, I believe the same thing that Bible-believing Orthodox Christians have always believed. No, I'm not ultra-fundamentalist. I'm not ultra-conservative. I'm Orthodox. I believe what Paul believed. I believe what Jesus taught. I believe what the church has taught and written. I'm aligned with this, and this is where I will remain. Be that. So when they refute it, 
They're not refuting something I've come up with. They're not refuting something new. They're refuting something that is timeless. And make sure that your life speaks to it with integrity. Finally, and I'll end with this in short order, verses 9 and 10. We've covered this subject in much greater detail in Paul's letter to Timothy. So if you're new here today, it may sound like I'm giving short shrift to this. It may leave you with some questions, which you don't intend to. But there are some messages where I dealt with what does the Bible mean when it deals with slaves, and how do we understand that today? And you can find that message on our website. But I'll speak just to a couple of quick points from verses 9 and 10. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Slave, bondservant, whatever term you want to use, we really should not soften the terminology, but instead recognize that slavery was a cultural reality of the first century. We've talked about this much. Crete would have been part of that wider Roman Empire at one time with all the Roman influences. As many as 40% of the people living on the planet this time were under some form of bondage or slavery. This is not an endorsement of. It's just simply dealing with the reality of the situation. And what's, what's the challenge to them? As Christians, first. Your ultimate identity you're a Christian first, right? Before you're a slave to anybody or a bondservant to anybody or an employee of anybody, you are a slave of Christ. That's your ultimate identity. So as that, whether you like your station in life, whether you pray daily, nightly to be freed from the station in life, whatever it may be, you serve Christ first. So you have this responsibility. Be submissive to your leaders. Be pleasing to them. Be respectful to them and be honest. Don't pilfer. Don't steal from them. In other words, what is he saying? He says, even in that lowly station, live as a Christian. Why? So that they can make the teachings of Jesus attractive. Even a slave or a servant whose commitment to God was primary. That was their identity. I'm a slave of Christ. You can make an impact for Christ. So this whole predicament of slavery, the difficulty of being in this position, the challenges of that, that only magnifies Christ. That only magnifies. It's not the person that's in authority, the person that has all the power or all the resources. They say, yeah, it's easy for you to follow Christ. Look how good he's been to you. What about the person who's suffering, going through difficulty? Honor Christ. Just honor Christ with your life. Why? What's the ultimate reality here? We are Christians first. And that's hard for us to get our minds around. We think our first concern is to get out of the slavery. No, our first concern is to always honor Christ, to be a Christian in every circumstance, every situation. Thank God we don't have slavery like this anymore. But we still have oppression. We still have disconnect. We still have stratas of society. We still have people struggling. But we're Christians first. Everything else is secondary. You see... We all have the capacity, in the words of this text, to adorn the gospel, to adorn it, or to diminish it. I mean, verses 5, verses 8, verses 10 all speak to this potential in each of us. In our lives, as those who claim to be followers of Christ, who believe in the good news of the gospel and say, we've been forgiven, we've been transformed, we we belong to Christ now. We're not who we used to be anymore. We are made new in Christ. 
We have the ability with our own lives to adorn this gospel, to show the beauty of it and how we live, or we can diminish it. We know the reality of this. We're speaking the gospel every day, making much of it or making little of it. We can give evidence to the practical sensibility of our faith, or we can discredit it. And you have to ask yourself, which will it be for me? Will I make what Christ has done in my life look as beautiful as it is? Or will I diminish it for others? Whether I'm a young man or an older man, a young woman or an older woman, whether I'm a teacher in the church or, or I'm at the bottom peg of society, Christ is first. And one day we'll all be equal before him. Brothers and sisters in one spiritual family together. I pray that you will choose the sensible life, the life of truth, the life of honoring Christ, and you won't go it alone. You'll bring others with you. And you'll follow those who are already walking ahead of you. I want you to pray with me this morning. Father, there's so much packed into those verses that it's hard to feel like we've done justice, or I've done justice even in beginning to touch all the points. But Father, it's clear at the very least that you're a God of truth. Not my truth or our truth, but the truth. You are, through Christ, the way and the truth and the life. Knowing the truth, Jesus said, would set us free. Free from the bondage of, of lies of distorted reality, of our own faults, creation, of so-called truth. We're free of that. We can know you and Jesus whom you sent for us. We can follow you and love you. We can cherish you and adore you. We can trust you and live expectantly for your return. We can do all of these things Live in the truth. Live with the, with the grain of reality. Not going against you. What's real or right or good, but with it. And then have the life, as Jesus said, is the full life. Life to the full. The contrary to this, Father, we know is an enemy whose only aim is to steal or kill or to destroy. To diminish your worth. To destroy your creation including us, mostly us. Father, I pray as we've listened to your word today that you've moved us, not just in feeling or understanding, but moved us to action, to obedience, to, to trusting obedience. And Father, I know even as, I, as I've just initiated this thought, Lord, I pray this would become true of us. I, I pray that this sort of interrelational, genuine family community, multi-generational, organic, life-on-life discipling would happen here. That with humility, the younger would yield themselves to it, seek it out with eagerness, honest eagerness. That the older generation would generously give it. That we'd re-engage in the fight for the sake of our marriages and families and 
church, community. And Lord, that you be honored and glorified. Lord, make us the sort of people whose lives are worth imitating. May we know the truth and live according to it. And may we share it with one another. Lord, this is my prayer today. In Jesus' name, amen.